You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Connie Willis is the author of the Doomsday Book, Remake, Bellwether, Uncharted Territory, Passage, To Say Nothing of the Dog, Lincoln's Dreams. Her forthcoming novel is Blackout. Thank you for joining me, Connie. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Connie, uh, you're one of the most skilled practitioners of taking using notions of the fantastic, of a variety of choices, to talk about things that we can't otherwise talk about. And one of the things you do very well is time travel. You use it to make both very serious and moving fiction, but also you have a lot of fun Mm -hmm. with this. Tell us a little bit about your first well-known foray into time travel, the Doomsday Book. Which was Doomsday Book. Um, Yeah, I love love history, for starters. I I think that uh, history is just so fun and so fascinating and much better than anything you could ever make up because what happens is so, you know, I could never take real historical incidents and put them in a book um, and, and call it fiction because no one would believe you. The, you know, the incidents that come from history are just totally unbelievable. So, um, but, and sometimes people say to me, why don't you just write historical fiction if you like history so much? And I do, I mean, I've written about history a lot, the Civil War and the Middle Ages and, and uh, the Titanic. But I think especially the time travel gives you this great sort of parallax vision where you can, you have, if, if you're just writing historical, you're stuck with characters who are in the period and people in a period know almost nothing about that period. I don't feel that I'm an expert at all on the current historical period that we're living through. You, you don't have any perspective. You have no way to get perspective. You're stuck in the middle of it. You don't know how it's going to turn out or what it meant or why it was important or which direction it ended up taking us. But we do know all that about the past. And so I, I have, by having time travel characters there, I get to look at the, at the historical period from the point of view of the people stuck in it who don't have a lot of insight into it but are living through it. And then I get to look at it from the point of view of, of how moderns view it. And then in between, there's sort of a space <laughs> where you can maybe form your own opinion about our own time and, uh, and, and how we view the past and, and do really interesting things that you couldn't do, I don't think, with just a historical novel. So. And in Doomsday Book, I was dealing with um, the Black Death, which is um, a really great period of history to write about, but not to be in. <laughs> it's not <laughs> something I would really like to go see myself, but, but I sent my poor character there to suffer through. And we suffer with her quite effectively right, because yeah. it is a really awful time of history. Talk about recreating that awful time of history through the lens of our time without making it seem like it's our time. Yeah, well, you know, what, I, I don't know. I, I, call this, I call this probably unfairly the John Jakes phenomenon, but I, I think we've all read historical books where they definitely got the, they got the horses right, they got the clothes right, they got maybe the, the accent or the customs right, but they totally screwed up the people because the people think like modern-day people. Mm-hmm. And, and the past is a foreign country. People in the past didn't think like we think now. They believed a whole different set of things about mm-hmm. the world. And um, 
they had a different worldview. They a had a, a knowledge of the universe. A totally different worldview and a totally different attitude toward everything. And I think that that, for me, is always the hardest thing to get right. Um, it's always a struggle to to put your, you know, and, and, and time travel, actually I have less trouble with my time traveling characters because they're just us, you know, and, and the way it looks to them, they can go back in time and be appalled by how dirty the Middle Ages are, and uh, whereas everyone else is taking it completely in their stride and trying to, to, view, to view the world through the lens of those people is I find much harder. That's what I always have the most trouble with is trying to get those people right and how did the world look to them and, and I think also we tend to be very, I, I guess for lack of a better term, I'd call it tempocentric. We, we have a real condescension toward the past, you know. Um, historians will frequently write about, well, you know, people in those days, in pioneer days, people didn't care that much about their children. They were so used to losing them in, in infancy. What kind of remark is that? You know, the assumption is, they didn't have as fine a feelings as we have. They weren't as sensitive, they weren't as caring, which is ridiculous, patently ridiculous. Women had nervous breakdowns over the number of, of children they lost. You know, I mean, it, it, they were us in that sense. And figuring out, you know, what it would really be like to be back there and going through these things, and while at the same time having a different worldview is, oh, it's tricky, but fun, really fun to do, so. As you create these characters of the past, that's a really interesting observation that you made that um, they would, of course, react with horrible, you know, sorrow at the deaths of children. Um, this is a, as I said, this is a really interesting observation. Um, could you talk about like researching actual historical records? Do you do you how much do you go to the source? How much do you go to the internet? Well, you know, it, it depends. When I wrote well, when I wrote Doomsday Book, the internet wasn't really an <laughs> option. Um, I find the internet unbelievably frustrating in terms of doing research. It depends mm -hmm. on what you want, um, but <laughs> I have a that. My current book, um, which is a, it's a two-parter, mm -hmm. um, the first half is called Blackout, and then the second is called All Clear, and they're really one novel split in two. But it's about the Blitz. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, just as an example, I, was tr I couldn't remember from, I had looked this up before, but I couldn't remember what day Selfridge's department store was hit. I knew it was in December in 1940. I knew that the uh, Palm... Palm Court restaurant on the top floor was damaged and that there was damage in other departments, but I didn't know the exact date. So I thought, the internet's got to be the fastest rather than rummaging through all these books that I've used. So I typed in Blitz Selfridges and I got <laughs> new spring Blitz sale on <laughs> women's coats at Selfridges. So I was like, okay, that's not it. So then I did Blitz Selfridge's World War II, and that didn't help. And so then I typed in 1940, that didn't help. So then I, I was just, and I was just massively frustrated. And after about an hour and a half of playing this sort of game of open sesame with the computer of what combination of words is going to get me this date, I finally gave up and looked it up in the books that I had previously looked it up in and found it in about two minutes flat. So so I, I find the the internet is really good for like sort of general knowledge. It's good for the random fact, how many years between the storming of the Bastille and the reign of terror, things like that. Wikipedia, I adore for that reason. But for the 
The hardest research is to get the feel of things and the sense of the contemporaneous. And um, in Doomsday Book, I, I used some, I'm not a historian, so I didn't use a lot of you know primary sources in, mm -hmm. that had to be translated out of the Middle English or anything. But um, I, did, I did try to, to read some contemporary accounts of the plague to get a feel for how it felt, you know. And mm -hmm. one of them that was so terrible was, especially I'd read it after all of these comments that they didn't care and people didn't have feelings back then, you know. They were used to death, so the Black Death didn't really bother them that much, was one by a man named Agnola, Agnola the Fat, who was in Italy at the time, and he wrote, This day have I buried my wife and five children. No bells, no tears. It is the end of the world. And I thought, well, he sounds bothered. He sounds <laughs> like this really, he wasn't taking this in his stride. No. And so, so from that, I came to my own conclusions about how people probably felt. And, and I think a big part of writing this kind of fiction is figuring out which parts of human nature are changeable and which aren't which things, you know, beliefs can change, worldview can change, but w what are the constants? What are the things that make us human? And what are the things that if you're, if you're in, you know, ancient Egypt or if you're 3,000 years in the future are going to be exactly the same? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I always think, you know, they're gonna, you're going to see cr kindness. You're going to see stupidity. You're going to see... Um, people behaving badly in all circumstances. The rule of all new technologies is the f that the first thing people do with a new technology is figure out a way to commit a new crime, you know? And so that, that gives me guidance, you know? All those things that I believe about, about humans and, and how they're gonna act in circumstances. But it's, it's an interesting exercise trying to figure out what, because what you're really saying is what is human nature? And I'm not, there are science fiction writers who believe that human nature changes and that we're perfectible and that man in the year 3000 is going to be a better and different, a more progressed, evolved character. Personally, I don't see us making any progress whatsoever <laughs> as far as our behavior. And so, so I, I don't do that. In my books, my human nature stays the same and people are still as oh, annoying and stupid as they are it, you know, in 3000 or ancient Egypt. And, uh, and I have evidence to back that up. <laughs> so <laughs> Many years of history. Yeah. Do but also, you. you know, humans, I love, I think humanity is really a, a fascinating species. I mean, we have extremely self-destructive qualities. Um, and and there's, no, there's no underestimating how awful we can be. But w just capable of incredible courage and incredible kindness, incredible rising to the occasion. I just think humans, the more I read history, the better I feel about, about humanity as a species. So I'm, not, I'm the only person I don't know who's not becoming more cynical <laughs> as I get older. Everybody I know is like, oh, in the old days, you know, in good old days, people behaved like human beings. Like, they never behaved like human beings. They, they've always been big poops. But, but still, they have their moments, and their moments are astonishing, you know, so. That gives me hope. Talk about the use of time travel as an element of the fantastic. I mean, it can happen 
you know, we tend to think of it now as technology, but I mean, Mark Twain didn't invent right. no time Listen, machine to right. send a Connecticut Yankee That's back right. to King Arthur's yeah. court. So yeah. it's a it's a time honored, not surprisingly, right. uh, trope. trope of the fantastic. <laughs> right. Well, the the cool thing about time travel is I think you can do so many things with it. You can you can deal with the concept of time travel itself, the the mechanics, you know, you're interested in if we had time travel, exactly how would that work? How would the machine work? How would the science work and so on? Things like Greg Benford's Timescape are a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. And those are great stories to read. Um, and then there are stories that could care less how they get you to the past. I'm in that category. <laughs> uh, my net is kind of really vague and stuff. I don't know how it works. But it, it gets you there, which is what I'm interested in. Because I want to know how time plays out and all the paradoxes and all the games you can play with it, the grandfather paradox, if you go back in time and shoot your grandfather so that you're not ever born, you obviously can't go back in time, shoot your grandfather, so you didn't, so there he is, so you did, so et cetera. All those time loops and the time worm that eats its own tail and all that stuff. I love all those stories. And in the 50s and 60s, there were, every science fiction writer was playing with that, usually in the short story venue, and coming up with new twists on that and new tricks and, and games. Um, Frederick Brown wrote a story where the first line was the last line, so that the story itself was a time travel closed loop, you know. And, um, and other people, I think uh, Heinlein did two different stories about a man who is his own grandfather and his own child and, <laughs> and his own wife. And oh my goodness, it, he just, you know, they were playing games and they were having a really good time. And then uh, along about the 80s, then people began saying, well, let's try and do some more sophisticated things with it, you know. And, and uh, I wanted to look at history itself, how history works, mm -hmm. and, then, and then look at interesting periods in history and how, how that plays out. And as I said, that parallax vision of, of the past viewed from its own time and then viewed from the future. And... Uh, and I think that, you know, you get all these great alternate histories that are playing with what if somebody had done something different at some key point in history, would the whole thing have gone off in a different direction? And how often history stands on a knife's edge and, and how important each person's action is. Um, in my new book, um, the, uh, this is World War II, and I'm looking at World War II from the civilian aspect. Not the, not the battles, but the, the uh, shop girls who were working on Oxford Street, which some people called the front, <laughs> you know, and um, the... It really uh, was the front. It was I mean, the front. The, the, the whole war effort would have been nothing without all the people in the back right. supplying the troops. Exactly. It would have collapsed immediately. Supplying the troops, but also just hanging on and mm -hmm. not, not giving way and not getting frightened. All the kids that were evacuated and mm -hmm. had to be taken care of in the north of England. All the retired sailors who went over and evacuated the entire British expeditionary force, 300,000 men in nine days flat, and most of whom were weekend sailors and fishermen and people who would otherwise never have been actively involved in a war. So I was really interested in how the individual can be that linchpin on which history turns. That um, one of the quotes that I found the most fascinating in researching the book was that there was this um, British diplomat's wife who was in, Engl in, in Washington, D.C. during the Blitz. 
uh, trying to get assistance. You know, they were tr we were trying to get money. They were trying to get money from America and help from America, which wasn't in the war yet. And uh, so she was at dinner, and um, her dinner partner said to her, "Tell me, how is civilian morale in London these days?" Of course, the height of the Blitz. And she turned to him very haughtily and said in her imperious British way, there are no civilians in London these days. <laughs> Which I thought was just brilliant, because there weren't. Everybody was in the war. And everybody, I think you can make an excellent case that even one defection, even one person who didn't do their bit, and the whole thing would have collapsed. And so. I, and that's how I see history. I see history as this thing where it's not the generals and the kings and the popes. It's, the, it's this tiny, insignificant, supposedly insignificant person on whom the entire linchpin of history turns. And, and that just makes me scared to death, <laughs> but also gives me a lot of hope because you're depending on people who have to come through, and they almost always do. It's amazing. They almost always do. So. The Blitz was a really interesting time, too. Uh, you mentioned this idea that there were no civilians, and it really obliterated, I guess, the perceptions of those who lived there. It obliterated their perceptions of, of certainty. They mm -hmm. could be, I mean, they could be sitting at home one day, dinner, and hear a crash, and the entire house next door is gone. gone. Exactly. And, and you know, sitting in the, in the tube stations at night, they, early on, there weren't enough shelters, so they co-opted the tube stations. And sitting there, um, the aristocracy and the common people sitting side by side on the floor <laughs> of the tube station platforms, um, which produced a whole different set of things happening mm -hmm. and a whole different social dynamic. Um, not only did they not know, one, if they would live through the night, two, if their house would be there when they left, or their neighbor's house, or their best friend, or their husband, or whatever, but three, if there would be German tanks rolling down the streets of London. I mean, that's what they had to live with. And that was the hardest thing for me in writing the book, was I know how the war turned out, mm -hmm. but it didn't look like that in 1940. Sure, and boy, that's an interesting perception. And yeah. I had to write at the top of every page when I was writing it, every blitz page that I was of the story, I had to write at the top, they don't know they're going to win. And try to keep that firmly in mind. Whereas my heroine in that section did know, but then there were things that made her think that maybe that didn't happen. <laughs> that that the historians themselves had somehow interfered, screwed up, and maybe lost the war. So, so I because I that that is the problem we have living now is we don't know how things will turn out. We don't we don't know what happens next, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. But um, but it's a really scary thing, and uh, and and I had to remind myself all the way through, no matter how black this looks. They won the war. They won the war, you know. And after a while, I was not certain they won the war. I was like, I don't think they won. Oh, no. So, yeah, it, it's really interesting to go back and try to put yourself in the place of somebody who's actually living through that, you know. Well, so. it strikes me, too, I guess, 
one thing, one challenge when you're writing historical fiction is creating tension around events where everybody knows the outcome. Right. When you're using time travel, right. you've actually, you absolutely have given yourself a delightful out and a way to create tension of whether or not you're planning on changing history. Right, right. And uh, the, the rule in my first two books about the past were that the historians could not mm-hmm. change history. And that was a given. And it wasn't important to the plot that they didn't have this ability to change history. But in this, in this new one, the, the uncertainty of whether they do or not is so, you know, is important. And, um, and I, I, two of my favorite movies are a really well-known movie, Apollo 13, and a, a not very well-known movie called The Dish, which is about um, the moon landing and the, um, the dish that they used to do the, produce the um, television pictures from the moon, which was in Australia. It's a minor little Australian movie, wonderful movie. Oh, I know that movie. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah it's a great really movie. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And in both instances, we know they got the pictures from the moon landing, and we know that Apollo 13, the, the crew got back okay. Mm-hmm. But watching those, you don't have any feeling of security that that's what happened at all, even though you know the outcome. I, and, and I really tried to study both of those to see how do you create that, you know, that sense of uncertainty in a situation where you know exactly what is going to happen, you know. But you don't know the individual fates, and you don't know, you know, you know the big picture, but you don't know the individual fates, and that goes a long way to, to whether you're going to you know, survive and stuff. So who's going to be left standing on VE Day if there is a VE Day and so on. So, but um, anyway, I love World War II. It's my favorite, you know, period of history. So it was fun to write. Well, as a as somebody who likes to travel in time, um, this is a, a, a trope that allows you to do a lot of really interesting things. And as a as a writer who's as you say, if you, you love World War II, why not just write about World War II? Why resort to that trope of the fantastic? Why, what does the, the fantasy element give you as a literary writer that you can't do with just a piece of history? Right. Well, I think, I think it gives you several things. I think um, one of them is, is, is what I talked about, the parallel, their parallax vision where you, you're looking at it from more than one point of view. I think a second thing is the feeling of how uncertain the whole thing is. We tend to think of history as just carved in stone, but it was really, it's always on a knife's edge. And it's not just the big, who's gonna, did we win at D-Day or not? The the real key is, you know, that all of D-Day impinged two weeks before a crossword puzzle in the Daily Herald had five of the D-Day code words, mulberry, Sword, Utah, trying to think, Overlord, which was the name for the whole operation, and one of the other beaches, Omaha, in one crossword puzzle. And the authorities immediately concluded that this was a a German code, that somebody had gotten hold of the information about the the invasion, and and that they were maybe going to have to cancel the entire thing. And if they canceled, they would have to wait at least a month and a half till the tides were right again. And a month and a half in which it was going to be impossible to keep that a secret from the Germans and impossible for them to keep it secret where they were going to invade, which was part of the big trick against Hitler, was convincing him we were coming at Calais instead of Normandy. 
So they had to go interview the crossword puzzle maker, who turned out to be a physics teacher of 30 years teaching experience with no known ties to Germany. He looked totally innocent. He managed to convince them that there was no way that anybody could, that he got clues from a variety of sources and therefore no one could tell whether their clue was going to appear in the puzzle. So there would be no way to communicate with anybody. And they decided it was a bizarre coincidence and went ahead with the invasion, but with great trepidation. You know, because, and when I read about it, I thought, that's too big a coincidence. I'm sorry. It wasn't a coincidence. Something happened. Well, 40 years later, when they were celebrating the anniversary of D-Day, the da Daily Herald published a story about this bizarre coincidence, whereupon this man came forward and said, it was me. I did it. He was a 13-year-old student of the physics teacher. The crossword clues were part of their homework assignment. And he had overheard two officers talking about what they weren't supposed to be talking about in a cafe. And not knowing what the words meant or anything, just grabbed him so he could do his homework. A 13-year-old boy and two careless officers almost lost the war. Boy, that's an incredible story. And it happens over and over again. It's <laughs> everywhere. It's thousands and thousands of times. And of course, we don't know how many mm -hmm. others because those are the ones that are recorded for mm -hmm. some reason. But right now, today, somewhere, the entire linchpin of history is turning on somebody totally, you would assume, was totally unimportant. And that should scare the heck out of anybody <laughs> or make them really happy because it means that it doesn't all devolve on our elected leaders or dictators or, you know, the big guys, that small people play an intensely important role. So that's one thing that I love to deal with in time travel and that I think you can do in time travel better than anybody else. Now, uh, alternate history takes that piece and gives it the other outcome and then says what would have happened to history if, in fact, D-Day had been derailed and, and so on. I don't, I'm not interested in doing that because I think the way it really worked out is so much more interesting than the way it could have worked <laughs> out. But, um, but I, that, that is one thing that I always love playing with is just how chaotic history is and what a bizarre set of circumstances it is. So I love that. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that we've witnessed recently um, in recent history is a change in the perception of the literature of the fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, used to be automatically dismissed that any piece of writing that had some element of the fantastic could, by virtue of that fact, not be considered serious, a serious literature. literature. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and that's really changed. And, and you know, you're one of the people who's I think played a part in that by virtue of, you know, of the skill of your work and, and the quality of it. Could you talk about being part of that? And as a writer who, you know, started out like having books that maybe looked like this. Uh -huh. <laughs> He's showing a picture of an alien on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to something that looks like this. Right, a much more mainstream cover. Or, or yeah. passage, which um, yeah. looks like it could be a, a, a religious novel. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Talk about that change for yeah. you as a writer. Yeah. Well, okay, it didn't, I've always written the same thing. Mm -hmm. It didn't affect me at all as a writer because I, I was one of those people who, 
you know, uh, the question I get asked most frequently probably is, why, why do you write science fiction? And it's not said in a nice way. It's, it's why would you write science fiction? As if it were a totally unworthy, you know, why do you read comic books kind of tone? And, um, and comic books have recently started coming up <laughs> in people's <laughs> estimation too. Um, and I never understood that question because I fell in love with, with science fiction on site. The very first science fiction novel I read, which was Have Space It Will Travel, within five pages, I was hooked. And knew that I, not just hooked, knew that I wanted to devote my whole life That's to a, writing that it. That book is a hazardous gateway it is a drug. Ha it, it is a gateway drug. It is. I it's, don't know how many people It have. has destroyed more lives than you can imagine. <laughs> And, um, and it had all these qualities that I loved, and the, it was funny, it was exciting, it was ironic. Uh, I cannot live without irony. And it was just, it was wonderful. It had a, and it had a sense of wonder about the universe that I really adored. So, so to me, it was really self-evident why you would write science fiction. I mean, wh why wouldn't you write science fiction? However, it, because I, I think largely because of, of where science fiction came from, which was out of these pulp magazines, which were really geared toward 13-year-old boys. And they always had monsters and spaceships and gorgeous women being hauled off by hideous creatures and stuff. Um, that everyone dismissed it the way they dismissed comic books and then went on dismissing it for years after it had... You know, in, in the same way that in a small town, a kid will get a reputation for being kind of a, you know, a troublemaker. And then even after he's grown up to be an archbishop, people just still see that little kid who was a troublemaker. They can't see the transformation at all. And not that he couldn't be an archbishop and a troublemaker. But so I think that that science fiction has tended to be dismissed. And I think that that's been helped along by marketing trends and by, by a number of writers who then snottily proclaimed that they, what they were writing was not science fiction. And how dare you call me a science fiction writer, which I've always really resented because I think, you know, of course they're science fiction writers. Of course. Uh, Jurassic Park is science fiction. Handmaid's Tale is science fiction. I don't see the point in denying this. That's, they they cl clearly have fantastic elements in them. So um, on the one hand, I've sort of resented being in this ghetto, you know, uh, of literature. On the other hand, I have this pet theory that when the dust on the 20th century settles, and people settle, sit down, and try to determine what the great literary works of science, of uh, li great literary works of the 20th century were. That they are all going to be genre. That they are going to pluck Alan LeMay and Larry McMurtry from the westerns, and they're going to pluck Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers from the mysteries, and and Chandler and Hammett, and they're going to pluck all these classics like. Canical for Leibowitz and uh, Daniel Keyes's um, Flowers for Algernon from science fiction. And those are going to be the works that last and not the mainstream literature. And therefore, I think that part of that reason that they will be is because I, th I believe that art flourishes best when the literati are not paying any attention, when no one's taking you seriously. Because the minute people take you seriously, then you have to take yourself seriously. And then you start second-guessing yourself, and then you start thinking about what you should be writing as opposed to what you really want to write. And I think that loses something. So now maybe that's all justification <laughs> of being stuck in the ghetto. 
But I have always, I've found it a great place to write. And because nobody's paying any attention to you. And then you turn out something great. And then, and then it's a great, it's a treasure that nobody expected to come from there. It's sort of the Miss Marple theory of literature, I guess. They're constantly underestimating you. And as a result, you solve the mystery, you know. So, so I guess that's my attitude. I'm glad to see science fiction becoming more accepted. And I'm delighted to see writers being taken seriously. I'm not sure it's entirely good for them, but but I think it's but I think it's uh, I, I'm I'm generally glad because no you know our books should be taken seriously. They're wonderful. There's there's junk being written, but there's junk being written in those books that Oprah picks. You know, there's junk everywhere, and there's great books everywhere. And I and I that's one of my pet things is that if you call yourself a reader, you've got to be reading Westerns, and you've got to be reading mysteries, and you've got to be reading fantasy and science fiction and romance and all the genres, because there's great stuff in all the genres and junk in all the genres, and it's your obligation to figure out where the great books are. It, it strikes me, too, that when you're talking about science fiction, that one of the reasons I think that uh, science fiction stands well for the long run, and I was thinking about some of the ghost stories of the early mm -hmm. late 19th mm -hmm. and early 20th century that have survived, is because they're not about the temporal aspects in the daily life of the period that right. has long since become irrelevant, but they're about more eternal issues, life and death. Right. Um, and because Do they're we have souls? Sure. And <laughs> because they're deliberately set outside of time, mm -hmm. they that. You can't them date them. Yeah, they you don't date. date them. That's right. Exactly. That's right. I, I think that is a large part of it. I also think that one of science fiction's great strengths has been, and fantasies too, has been how much work has been written at the short lengths. Mm -hmm. Because that is an area where um, you can get one really punchy idea across, uh, really set people thinking. L you know, sock them in the jaw, basically, <laughs> and then go off. I just read a story by Shirley Jackson that I'd never read before called Seven Types of Ambiguity. And it's, oh, it's tiny. It's maybe four pages long. And in that amount of space, it's the clearest depiction of evil that I have ever seen. Evil on a, not a, you know, horrible monsters coming out of the walls. Evil that, that, that people do to each other. And she's got... She's just like crystallized it into this beautiful little gem. And if she tried to write a novel on that, it, w it would not have nearly the impact as it does in a four-page story. It is literally like a sock in the jaw. And so I think science fiction, for years, there were no science fiction novels. There were just, if there were any, it was just a handful. And the vast amount of science fiction was being written at the short story and novelette lengths. And you got these people working at the top of their skills um, and on really complicated issues like, do we have souls? What is the meaning of time? What is the meaning of the universe? Why are we here? Why is no one else here? You know, um, and, and, and how can we be good people? And what does it mean to be human? And all those big issues in little tiny gem-like stories. And I, I still think that's where all the best science fiction is done is at the short short level. I write novels, but <laughs> but because there are things you can do in novels that you can't do in, in short stories. But there's a lot you can do in the short story, and that's still my favorite length. So, You are, have a great sense of humor and an easy sense of the antic, and you write playfully without writing jokes. 
and, and this is no is, is not common in science fiction. It's not common anywhere. It's, no, it's not common. <laughs> you're you're right. Uh, here's I stand uh, correct. <laughs> so, I wish it were, but it's not. <laughs> uh, talk uh. about what does the fantasy and science fiction genre offer you as a humorist that you can't find elsewhere, and what is universal? Um, well, I, one of the things that I loved about science fiction and, and one of the things that drew me to it was how much of it was funny. There were, there were a lot of humorous writing. Frederick Brown, Robert Sheckley, uh, William Tan, um, and, and Heinlein's Have Space That Will Travel is really funny and, and has a lot of wry, you know, asides and, and remarks. Um, and that was, I think, one of the reasons that I was early attracted to the field. That is my natural way of speaking. I have, a, I have to work harder on my more serious novels than my funnier novels because it's the humor that comes naturally to me. I see the world as really hilarious and, and uh, as I say, I can't live without irony and, and science fiction has always had tons of irony, so I'm happy there. Um, and it's, it's not you know, it's not very common, but I don't think it's an accident that so many science fiction writers are in love with P.G. Woodhouse and Mark Twain, that they are drawn to humorists outside the field, and, and that it's, a, it's, it's, humor is not jokes, it's a, um, and people never get that, <laughs> and this is why there are so many bad speeches, because people have been told that they should begin their speech with humor, and they think that means telling some horrible joke, and it's something that needs to be taken out of the universe immediately, <laughs> because it's so bad. It just punishes all of us, um, but humor itself is more a, a way of viewing the world. You look at it, and you, s you see the ironies, you see the contradictions, you see that there's so much that we can't do anything about, <laughs> but except laugh and move on, you know. And um, and it it you know I see comedy as very hope. It, it's it's both very dark because it it doesn't take the world seriously. It's not earnest, um, but at the same time, it doesn't take the world seriously, which means it it's not so intimidated or frightened or downtrodden by the world because it knows that most of these things don't even matter, you know. And basically, I think the message is of comedy is it just doesn't matter. That's quoting Bill Murray from Meatballs, but that it, that, or, or rather that the things that you think matter aren't really the things that matter, which is the message of all comedy, I think, that you think that status matters. Forget it. Status is hilarious. You think that money matters. No. You think that position in society matters. No. You think that all these different things matter. Uh, here are the things that really matter. And the message of all romantic comedies, which is my favorite genre to work in, is it's love that matters and communication with someone else that matters as opposed to all these other silly things that you're focusing on right now. Um, and, then, uh, and then caring and not caring at the same time is what matters. So I, I love comedy, but comedy has a way of leaking into all of my work, even if it's about World War II. Um, I have two characters in, in um, Blackout and All Clear who are Alf and Benny Hodbin, who are two of the worst children on the planet. And if we could just send them to Germany, the war would be over in two weeks. They could just drive Hitler crazy, and that would be the end of it. Um, unfortunately, they're in England and driving us crazy. So, 
Um, but I had a lot of fun, and they were sort of my comic relief in the in the story. But I'm a huge fan of Shakespeare, huge fan. He is. It is so totally unfair. He may well have been an alien because. He got all the gifts. He either was an alien or he's like at Sleeping Beauty's, you know, christening. He's the one with all the gifts. All the fairies came and bestowed, bestowed everything on him. He has, he has this incredible gift of language, which would be more than most writers could hope for. He also knows how to plot. He has more understanding of character than anybody else. He truly, his, his knowledge of how the world works and his knowledge of philosophy and what's important and oh just it's not fair it's so totally not fair that he should get all these good gifts and be able to do it in iambic pentameter it's just totally unfair and I just adore him and but he was he did not see at all a bear a boundary between comedy and tragedy. I mean, he has has wonderful comic pieces in the middle of his dark tragedies. The Porter's scene in Macbeth and some of the things in, in Hamlet are very comic. And um, and he was his favorite thing was to take a, a story and do it as tragedy, like Romeo and Juliet, and then do it as farce in Midsummer Night's Dream, and then do it as... Um, high comedy in Much Ado About Nothing, and then do it in sort of a bittersweet comedy drama in Winter's Tale, and it's the same story. And he, and he doesn't, I don't see that he sees any barriers. I hate it that they divide his plays into the comedies, the tragedies, and the historicals. All of his plays are all of those things. And so that's kind of my philosophy, too. I think that we should all do what he should try to do what Shakespeare did, only without all of his gifts, because none of the rest of us got any of them. You mentioned romantic comedies, which you do do very well, and you, you, I love them. <laughs> you have a, a wonderful time uh, applying the the genre fiction and fantasy tropes to them, and it, mm -hmm. it's very natural. That's not unusual to see that. Could you talk about your experience doing that? Yeah, I love romantic comedy, and and I started writing them. One of my very first short stories was a, a romantic comedy um, about an alien who had checked out a bunch of library books, as I recall, and and then studied them fearlessly, or they thought he had studied them because he's now back and announcing that he's prepared to mate with the librarian, and um, she is vastly annoyed by him, but kind of attracted also. And, and uh, so they spend the rest of the story trying to figure out frantically which books he's been reading <laughs> and what, what on earth he's come up with. And, um, and I did it because, partly because I loved the romantic comedy, I was raised on the romantic comedy movie of the, I, I watched something called Academy Matinee on my summer afternoons, and they were all the bringing up baby, and it happened one night, and talk of the town, and all those great, you know, uh, 1930s screwball comedies. And so I wrote them because they weren't anywhere. They weren't, we were just coming out of the Doris Day Rock Hudson, which, not romantic comedies, I'm sorry, Pillow Talk fails the test of a romantic comedy. And um, I was trying to recreate and print something that I had always loved in the movies. And now we've had this fabulous resurgence of romantic comedies in the movies, and so now I'm happy. And so probably I wouldn't have written all the stories if I, if I had been totally satisfied at the movies. But, um, but I, I love writing them. They're, 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 like they're like sonnets they're a really highly 
conventional kind of story. There's a pattern to them. There are thousands of rules that you have to follow. But within there, you have all this space to mess around, and it's, and it's really fun. And by making them science fiction stories, you know, by adding in aliens and, and uh, um, ghosts and spirits and all kinds of stuff, you're, you're adding a whole, a whole nother level. Uh, it gives you a whole bunch more stuff to play with. And uh, I'm currently, now that I, I just finished my book, I'm thinking of doing several romantic comedies, and one of them is a, a telepathy-based um, comedy because I think it would be so fun if, if uh, people were having a surgery to telepic telepathically, that's wrong, uh, connect themselves to, so, so you're engaged. And then the next step is for additional, you know, compatibility and additional communication. You have this surgery and then you're even more in tune with each other because you have telepathy. I thought it would just really be cool if this girl had it done and then, yes, she was telepathic, but with, not with her fiance, with this other really annoying person. And, you know, I thought that would be really fun. So, so I just love, I love, if I, if I had my druthers, I would just write romantic comedy from now till I died <laughs> because it's my favorite kind of story. So, I've been speaking with Connie Willis. Her forthcoming novel is Blackout. Thank you for joining me, Connie. Thank you so much. This is great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.